Father. You, you are great. You are worthy of our praise. And as that song said, I pray that for me and for each of us, that we would be able to sing that from our soul, that your greatness would not be, be something we say or something we think, but that our souls would praise you for your greatness and your glory, that our souls would sing of how great you are. And if we come to your word this morning, for that your word would move our souls once again to praise you for your greatness as we see how mighty, how great you are from your word. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, there are certain uses of the English language that kind of baffle me. For, for example, there's like this seemingly fairly recent trend of using the word literally to mean figuratively. Like, if you say, like, I was so embarrassed, I literally died. Like, <laughs> really? Because, like, the fact that you're standing here telling me this story begs to differ. Like, that's not what literally means. But, in fact, like that use of literally, though, it becomes so common that in 2013, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary added a second definition of literally. And that definition is this. In effect, virtually, used in an exaggerated way to emphasize a statement or description that is not literally true or possible. Which, like, A, that violates, like, the rule I always learned that you can't use the word to define the word, right? They use literally in the definition of literally, and then they use it to define the opposite of the original meaning. Like, I don't understand how that works. Like, literally means not literally. And, like, I was ready to write this off. Like, I saw this, like, 2013. Like, oh, it's another sign the world is falling apart. But then I found out, like, it's not as new as I thought. Like, Mark Twain wrote that Tom Sawyer was literally rolling in wealth. And F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote about Jay Gatsby and the great Gatsby that he literally glowed. So they, even those guys used the word literally to mean not literally, which is perplexing. Like, it's I just, I don't get it. Like, it literally makes my head want to explode. Right? Like, <laughs> another use of English that I find kind of perplexing is when like, someone receives a prestigious award, right? whether it's like a Grammy or an Oscar, like a Nobel Prize, and they'll stand up and they'll say, like, I'm so humbled to receive this award. Like, I'm so humbled to be here. I'm so humbled to receive this award. Right? But humble means to be lowered in dignity or importance. Right? So, like, standing here winning a Nobel Prize makes you feel lowered in dignity? Like, lowered in importance? Like, isn't that kind of like an insult to the award itself? Like, somehow this award is so meaningless that it, like, makes me feel lower? Like, like why, did, why would we say we're humbled in that circumstance? But it turns out that, like, people have a good reason for downplaying their own success, for playing it humble even in those moments. Right? There's a, an article published in the, in the journal Emotion that was called Don't Grin When You Win. And that article discussed this research that 
where like, these subjects were showing video clips of people winning a variety of things. Right? Some people were winning Academy Awards or tennis matches or game shows. Like, people saw videos of other people winning things. And some of the winners in these video clips reacted with obvious joy, with obvious jubilation and pride over winning. And then other winners were more subdued. They kind of restrained their emotions at, at, even after they won. And so there, people were shown these clips, and then after they were shown the clips, they were asked to rate the winners on a, just the overall scale of likability from one to seven. Why 1 to 7? I don't know, but that was the scale. And so they're acting on likability from 1 to 7. And the people who reacted more humbly, more subdued, received a likability score of 5.35 out of 7. Whereas the people who reacted with more overt joy and pride in their winning received a score of 4.88 out of 7. Right? So the people who were acting more subdued were rated more likable than the people who reacted with genuine joy at their winning. Like we tend to like our winners to act like they, they aren't that great, right? They, to act humbly even after they win. But here's the thing. When you, when you do something that is genuinely worthy of praise, it gets deceptive, and it's like false humility to reject that praise. Like you can acknowledge other failures you've had. You can acknowledge that you're weak in other areas, but to reject praise for something that is truly praiseworthy is just as disingenuous as taking credit for something you didn't do. Which is why in the Bible we see God being praised regularly, but we never see God respond by saying, like, ah, like, I don't deserve that praise. God never says that. He never responds with false humility. Because right? everything God does is praiseworthy. And so when he's praised in the Bible, like he receives that praise. He doesn't try to downplay it. He doesn't respond by saying, like, oh, I'm so humbled to receive the praise you're giving me. Right? And nowhere do we see God praise more than in the book of Psalms. In fact, we talked about, we're going to spend the next five weeks, or last week and then, this week and then three more weeks, going through the five kind of categories of psalms. The so last week we got a royal psalm, and today is a psalm of praise. A praise psalm are one of the five categories of psalms. And so the praise psalm we're going to look at this morning in particular is <clears throat> Psalm chapter 8. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to, to turn to Psalm 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the seat in front of you. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit this morning, especially at the end of the sermon, to several New Testament passages. So I'd really encourage you to have a Bible ready um, before you just to you know, look at some of those things. But we're going to start in Psalm chapter 8 this morning. Let's read this together. Psalm chapter 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. 
You made them ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So if you, you have that open in front of you, one thing you'll notice is that this psalm starts and ends with the exact same statement. The statement of praise. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that statement right there is what makes this psalm a psalm of praise. This psalm is all about God's name being majestic, being worthy of praise in all the earth. And then the rest of the psalm, everything between those two statements, is about what exactly makes God's name majestic. What makes God's name worthy of praise. And so, before we move on from this statement, I want to like talk about one, one little thing. Because right? this statement is a little bit, to our ears, repetitive. Right? Lord. Our Lord. Like, why does it say Lord twice? It seems a little repetitive. But if you look closely at your Bible, or even on the screen here, right, you'll notice that the first instance of Lord is in all caps, and the second instance of Lord only has a capitalized L. And the reason for that is that like, that first Lord in the Hebrew there is the, the personal name for God, Yahweh, right, that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And then the second Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is just a more general term for, for Lord, as someone who has authority. And so if you look at like, the Hebrew, if you look in the Hebrew Bible, the, the Hebrew text here, like, it says, Yahweh knew, which is the Hebrew word for our, Yahweh knew Adonai, which doesn't sound nearly as redundant as Lord our Lord. Right? But the ancient Israelites... They like, refrained from speaking the personal name of God in order to ensure they didn't take the Lord's name in vain. And many of our kind of modern translations reflect that tradition by writing LORD in all caps whenever Yahweh shows up in the Hebrew Bible. But that can lead to this confusion between the two uses of LORD. And so some translations have started using Yahweh in these situations. For example, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse as Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. They, they put that personal name of God in there. I think that's appropriate because like, the irony in all of this is that this verse is all about how God's name is worthy of praise. Right? How majestic is your name in all the earth. But most of our translations don't use the name God revealed, even though it's right there in the Hebrew text. But that's what this psalm is about, like praising God and His majestic name, the name He has revealed to us. And the question becomes, why? Like, What in particular makes God's name worthy of praise? And of course, like, there's numerous, like, innumerable reasons that God is worthy of praise. We could list them on and on. Right? And other psalms go into other reasons for why we praise God. But this psalm in particular has kind of one main reason for why we praise God. One main focus on what is 
worthy of praise in God. And in this psalm, the thing that is worthy of praise is God, the way God is able to use even the weak things to achieve his purposes. Or to put it another way, if we wanted to summarize this whole psalm in one sentence, we could say, God displays his praiseworthy majesty by using the weak to achieve his purposes. But to fully appreciate like, what this psalm is trying to communicate about God's use of the weak, we need to look at more than just this psalm itself. And so this morning I want to look at three things that I think will hopefully help us fully appreciate how God uses the weak to achieve his purposes. And so first I want to look at the context that this psalm is set in. Right? That is to say, like, I want to look at what's going on in the other psalms around this psalm. And then second we'll look at this psalm itself. And finally, I want to look ahead to the New Testament, how the New Testament understands and uses this psalm in light of Jesus. And so we'll look at the context, and then the psalm itself, and then the application of that psalm. One of my, my favorite TV writers is a guy named Aaron Sorkin. He's probably most famous for, for the, he wrote The West Wing. Um, he wrote a number of other TV shows and movies. And like, perhaps what he's known for more than anything else is kind of pioneering this technique called the walk and talk. And so these would be scenes where like one camera in one take would follow characters as they walked over long distances, often through the halls of the White House in, in the West Wing. And as the name suggests, like, they would just, the camera, one camera would follow them as they walked and as they talked. Right? But often these scenes would start with the camera zoomed out Right, to give you a sense of the context of what the characters were, were walking in. And then they would walk and they would talk for all the camera would follow them. And then often at the end of all that walking and talking, right, the camera would pan around or it would shift your attention away from the people who are talking to some other event. And almost always that other event had something to do with what the walkers and talkers were originally talking about. And so this morning I want to take a kind of, kind of a, a Sorkin-esque approach to walking through this psalm. Right? I want to start kind of zoomed out, like get into context, and then we'll zoom in on Psalm 8 itself, and then at the end we'll kind of pan the camera around, look at the New Testament to see how it's applied there. So that's the plan. Let's kind of jump into by looking at first the context that the Psalm 8 is, is set in. In particular, I want to, I want to consider verses, or Psalms 3 through 7, and then Psalms 9 through 14. So the psalm surrounding this psalm on either side. But if you have your Bible and you look at Psalms 3 through 7, like, you'll quickly notice a theme. You should kind of skim over them. Right? These are all psalms written by David when he's facing some kind of hardship or distress, often when he's fleeing from his son Absalom, who's trying to kill him. Right? And so verse 3, or in Psalm 3, David says, How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And in Psalm 4, David pleads with God, like, give me relief from my distress. In Psalm 5, he begs God, like, consider my lament, hear my cry for help. In Psalm 6, David says, heal me, Lord, my bones are in agony, my soul is in deep anguish, I am worn out with groaning. And then Psalm 7, like, save and deliver me from all who pursue me. 
for they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. So all these psalms, right, they, they picture David in a weak position. His enemies are stronger than he is, and he is desperate for help to defeat them. Like he is seemingly without hope. And the situation is much the same in Psalms 9 or through 14. Right? So in Psalm 10, David pleads with God, like, don't forget the helpless. In Psalm 12, he says, help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Psalm 13, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So Psalm 8 is surrounded on both sides by pleas for help, like by laments, by cries for desperation. And then right in the middle of all that pleading and crying for help is this song of praise. It seems like a bit of a strange place to find a song of praise. But the idea here is that like, even though on either side of the psalm like, things look bad, things look bleak, right? God, David, like God's chosen king is weak and he's helpless. But this, this middle psalm reminds us that there is still hope, even in the midst of that darkness and that weakness, because God the Almighty is on David's side. And he can use even David's weaknesses to bring about his purposes. And so that's the, that's the context that this psalmist said in that there's this weakness on either side, but right in the middle there's a song of praise about how God can use that weakness to achieve his purpose. And we see that, that same kind of idea illustrated twice within the psalm itself. So back in Psalm 8, if we look at verse 2, Psalm 2 says this, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So God's going to silence his foe and his avenger. How? Through the praise of children and infants. Children and infants. Like they're, they're the weakest, most unintimidating people like the psalmist could pick. But because God is so mighty, he can use even the praise of infants and children to silence his enemies. God uses the weak to achieve his purposes. And we see a second, kind of longer, more fully fleshed out example of this in verses 3 through 8. But this time, instead of using the weakness of babies to illustrate a point, David uses the weaknesses of mankind generally to illustrate his point. That's the verse 3, David writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. David calls the heavens the work of God's fingers. Not even the whole arm, not even the whole hand, just the fingers. Like God set the moon and the stars in place and it wasn't particularly hard for him. It's just the work of his fingers. And if that's true, then the question the psalmist asks next is an important one. Like if God is so mighty, so massive, so big that he can make the universe with his fingers, then for four, like, what is mankind? 
that you are mindful of them. Like, human beings, that you care for them. Like, like, if you can do all that, God, like, why care about puny little us? And the amazing thing is, like, compared to us, David, if he writes this psalm, knows fairly little of the scale of the universe. Like, when he talks about looking out at the stars, I imagine he's picturing, like, back in his childhood, when he was a shepherd, being out at night, watching over his sheep in pure blackness, and looking up at the night sky, and seeing just a sky filled with stars. If you've ever been out in a place where it's pitch black, and you see a night sky filled with stars, it's an impressive sight. But here's the thing. Like, on a perfect night, perfect viewing conditions, the naked human eye can see about 2,500 stars. Which is a lot. But to David's knowledge, that's probably about how many stars he thought there were, period. But thanks to modern tools, telescopes and whatever else, like, we think there's about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And that there's a billion trillion stars, that's one with 21 zeros after it in the observable universe. Carl Sagan has famously said, like, there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on Earth. And each one of those stars is not just a pinprick of light that David may have thought they were, but they are unimaginably massive, unimaginably hot balls of gas. Right, and so if David could look up and see 2,500 pin, pinpricks of light and the moon, and that was enough to be, make him amazed at the fact that God would consider mankind at all. Right? Like if David was amazed at that, how much more should we, like knowing all that we know about the scope of the universe, how much more should we be amazed right? that, that God, who created all of that with his fingers, right? would care for us? Like Bill Nye, the science guy, like he has said, we are just a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck in the corner of a speck in the middle of nowhere. And in truth, like we have little right to expect anything more than that. Like in comparison to the scope of the universe, like that's true. Like we are mostly nothing. Like we don't just don't have any right to expect God to take, care, take notice of us. But He does. And the fact that He does should cause us to respond like David does here. Like, why, why are you mindful of us? Why do you like, care for us? Like, there should be a humility in coming before our God when we consider how massive the universe is and how small we are. There should be a humility in our relationship with God that we would do well to remember as we come before Him. Like that He created the universe. Like he spoke and those billion trillion stars came into existence. In comparison, we are insignificant. We are weak. And yet, God chooses to display His praiseworthy majesty by using us, weak as we are, to achieve His purposes. God did not leave us, but He chooses to use us to achieve His purposes. 
Again, verses 5 through 8 say, You have made them, that is man, a little lower than the angels, and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You have put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. But despite our smallness, despite our weakness, God has given us meaning and purpose. We, we, there's such grace in that that God would care for us and give us purpose. When I read these verses, I, I think of the book the, the Giving Tree by Michelle Silverstein. Apparently it's over 50 years old now, so uh, like, you may have read it, but like, it's been popular for like, my whole life. So, but this book, if you're not familiar, right, starts out following this relationship between a boy and a tree. And as the book progresses, the boy gets older and older. But in the, beginning of the, in the beginning of the book, the boy is playfully, joyfully playing in the tree. He's swinging from his branches and eating his apples. He's sleeping in the tree's shade. And like, the tree is happy to have the boy interacting with him in this way. And, but then the boy gets older, and the cares of the world start creeping in. And it, like, he spends more and more time away from the tree. But then one day... Like the boy comes back, and he's like a teenager, and he needs money for something, and so the tree offers to let the boy take his apples and sell the apples so the boy can have money. So the boy takes them, and we're told that the tree was happy that he was able to serve the boy in this way. And then many years pass, and the next page, the boy comes back as this middle-aged man, and he comes back, and he needs wood to build a house. And so the tree offered to let the boy cut off all its branches to build a house. I don't know how a couple branches is enough to build a house, but that beside the point. Right? And so like, we see this picture of a tree stripped of its branches. All we see is a bare trunk. But we're told that the tree was happy. And then many years later, again, the boy comes back and nothing has gone his way and he decides he needs a boat to get away from all his troubles. And so the tree tells the boy, like, cut down my trunk and make a boat out of the trunk. And so the boy does that. He sails away. And all that's left of the tree is just a stump. And then at the very end of the book, the boy comes back one last time. In the final pages of the book, read like this. I am sorry, boy, said the tree. I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing in them. I am too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I am too tired to climb, said the boy. I am sorry, sighed the tree. I wish I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I am an old stump. I am sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I am very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is, a good, is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down, sit and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. And like based on the title, like the giving tree, that book is often used to illustrate kind of the joy and the power of giving. 
But I think what that book actually shows, more than just the, the joy found in giving specifically, is the joy found in having purpose generally. Right? As long as the tree had a purpose in serving the boy, the tree was happy. Right? And the same thing true for us. Like if we're going to thrive as human beings, made in the image of God, we need to have purpose. Like we need to know that our life has meaning. And the beautiful truth of this psalm, of psalm 8, is that God gave us that purpose. God gives us meaning. And he didn't need to do it. Like, he could run this universe just fine on his own. Like last week, we looked at Psalm 2. And like how God sits in the heavens and he scoffs at people who try to overthrow him. Like God is so mighty, he doesn't need to worry himself with us. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our support. The God who created the universe by speaking with his fingers, he doesn't need anything. But amazingly, out of his graciousness to us, he invites us to have a role in ruling the universe. Verse 6 again. You made them, that is mankind, rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. God made us, like weak and powerless mankind, to be rulers over his creation. He gives us meaning. He gives us Purpose. He gives us a job to do. That's an amazing gift. That God would invite us to rule over His creation. That He would invite us to have all creation under our feet. That is, in subjugation to us. That there's just one problem. That as we look out at the world, that doesn't seem to be at least fully true. It doesn't seem to be fully true that we have all creation, all God's creatures, under our authority. Like 7.6 million people have died since 2000 of malaria. Like 7.6 million people have died because a tiny mosquito bit them and infected them with an even tinier parasite. Can we say in light of that that we have full dominion over the universe? Do we have dominion over those mosquitoes? Right. So clearly, this, like, this invitation to rule has not yet been quite fully realized. And that brings us to the third thing I want to consider this morning, which is the way the New Testament applies this psalm. So we're going to look at a number of places in the New Testament, but I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to start there because the author of Hebrews acknowledges the reality. Right? That is, everything presently does not seem to be in subjugation to mankind. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5, we read this. It is not to angels that he has sub- sub- subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. Right? But there is a place where someone has testified... I just like, side note, like the author of Hebrews like, is my hero for every time I've forgotten a reference. Right? Cause he's like, oh, there's some place someone has testified, and he's talking about Psalm 8. He said, there is some place someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. 
and put everything under their feet. So he's quoting Psalm 8, and then he says, And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. But then the author of Hebrews says this, Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angel for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The idea here seems to be that, like, presently, not everything is subject to mankind. But through Jesus, Jesus is in the process, by his death, of making those verses fully true. The second place we see this is in, in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, this is right after Jesus has entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And if you remember, like, Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding not on like, this mighty war horse that you would expect the Messiah to enter in on, like, but riding on a donkey, like a symbol of humility and weakness. And then shortly after Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, he's having one of his common conflicts with the religious leaders. And there's some the children who are praising Jesus. They're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the leader who just saw Jesus come in on this donkey and looking meek and humble, they, like, they think, like, how can this weak man right, allow such praise to be offered to him? And in response, Jesus quotes Psalm 8. He says, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And again, the implication here seems to be that like, Jesus is the key. Like, what the work Jesus is doing is the key to how this psalm, the word to the psalm, will become fully true, fully realized. And Jesus is the ultimate way that God uses the seemingly weak things to achieve His purpose. And the final Time the New Testament quotes the first I don't want to look at this morning, then first Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. We're going to start reading in verse twenty one. So here Paul writes starting in verse twenty one. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. That's Psalm 8. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God Maybe all in all. And so like, I think what this whole look at the New Testament tells us, right, that 
At the way Psalm 8 becomes fully true, the way that we fully have dominion over creation is through Jesus and through His sinless life and through His death on the cross and through His burial and resurrection. Because of all the things that Jesus has given power and authority to reign over all creation. So Jesus has that authority. And then Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Everyone who has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins will reign with Jesus. We will have dominion. We will rule over God's creation as we reign with Christ. So we went through that, those New Testament passages kind of fast. Let me just kind of summarize briefly kind of the main idea here. The first, that God makes mankind to have dominion over his creation. We read that first in Genesis 1 and then Psalm 8 repeats it. But because of our sin, because of our brokenness, we do not perfectly exercise that dominion. The world is broken, and it feels like it's ruling over us at times. But then Jesus comes in apparent weakness. As a man born, as a baby to a woman, like comes in weakness. And yet, he lived a perfect, sinless life and deals with our sin through his death on the cross. And then Jesus is raised from death. He's resurrected. He's given authority and dominion by God the Father. And everyone who trusts in Him reigns with Him. So through all this, right, we see like, God is using the weak to achieve His good and perfect purposes. And God's ability right, to use the weak for those purposes and his giving us a role to play in those purposes is what makes him worthy of highest praise. I don't know about for you, but for me, like, it's really easy to have an unhealthy focus on my own weaknesses, to like, really focus on the things that I can't do, areas where I'm weak, and then I can think like those areas of weakness, well, maybe they make me unable to serve God as well as some other people, maybe unable to be as effective for the kingdom of God as other people might be. Like I tend to dwell on those thoughts. And so just in closing this morning, I want to leave us with just one other passage from the New Testament that doesn't quite, like, doesn't quote Psalm 8, but it gets to the same idea. And again, it's found in 1 Corinthians 26-31. Hear these words. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are, that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who have become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 
Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses the weak that we don't take undue glory for ourselves, that we boast in Him and we glorify Him and we praise Him. Not many of us were wise or influential or strong when God called us to Himself in Jesus. But God displays His praiseworthy majesty by using the weak to achieve His purposes. As we leave here today, let us go not impressed by our own strengths, not full of ourselves, not boasting in our own power, but boasting in the Lord who uses the weak to achieve His purposes. Let's pray. Father, we praise You, we thank You that You are so mighty, You are so strong, that You create the universe with just the mere working of Your fingers. God, it's easy for me even to just say those words not appreciate the full significance behind them. It's so unfathomable how mighty you are. The fact that you would care for us, the fact that you would be mindful of us, it's truly amazing. God, I I confess for myself that I am self-centered, that I think I am worthy of attention and recognition far more than I am. God, would you help us to be humble as we come before you, truly in awe of your might, of your power. And we not take for granted the fact that you choose to be mindful of us. Even when we have nothing to offer. Even when we have no power in ourselves. Even when you do not need us. You still choose to give us purpose. You choose to give us meaning. You invite us to be part of what you are doing in the universe. We don't deserve that. But by your grace, you invite us to it. God, we we thank you for Jesus who came and he modeled what it looks like to live a human life dependent on your power and that you raised him to reign over all creation. And that even though now we can look out and see the brokenness of the world. We look forward to the day when Jesus will return. He will reign over the new heavens and the new earth and there will be no more pain or suffering or weakness or crying or death. 
And we will reign with Him. We trust that day is sure and coming because You have promised it and You are mighty and able to bring about Your good purposes through whatever means You deem fit. God, we be moved to praise You for all that You've done for us. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you go, would you go amazed by the goodness and the glory and the power of God and the fact that He has called you, invited you to be part of what He is doing in His universe. You are dismissed.